in the, we've been in the book of Acts for the last few weeks, and we've been going through the whole book this year, and we're, we're in Acts 15 this morning. So Acts 15 is a really interesting chapter. It's an important moment in the life of the church because Acts 15 is when there was the first big internal rift in the church, the first big division within the church itself. Um, some people ask the question today, I've heard it said, some people ask the question, hey, why can't the church look more like the book of Acts? And when they say that, they're referring to Acts 2, which is when the, per when the church was together in perfect harmony and everybody was sharing together and breaking bread in homes and, and worshiping and the Holy Spirit was just alive and active. They're probably not referring to this chapter. Uh, this chapter kind of brings us back to reality a little bit. So if you've been going through the book of Acts and you've been like, man, this, this church in Acts seems too perfect, uh, it, seems, it seems too ideal, Acts 15 kind of brings it back to reality for us because we realize that, hey, they were human just like we're human, okay? So if you've been waiting for that, uh, that's, this is a chapter that kind of brings, brings the church back to reality uh, where you have infighting and factions and all that good stuff, you know, all that, all that fun stuff. But basically, Acts 15, there's an event called the Jerusalem Council that happens, and it's this whole debate about salvation. What does someone have to do to be saved? And they couldn't agree. There were two sides of the issue. There were Jewish background people who thought that they needed to keep the whole Jewish law and be circumcised, and then there were the Gentiles on the other side who were just coming out of a pagan religion with many gods and just finding out about Jesus. And so you could tell how these two totally different worlds just were on a collision course. And it was all about this issue of what do I have to do to be saved? What is essential for salvation? And as you can imagine, when you have one group saying you need to keep the whole law and you need to be circumcised, you can tell that one group is not going to like that very much, right? Like, they were not fans of that instruction. So um, it actually said it unsettled their minds. It made them really uncomfortable. And so you have this big rift that's going on because this new group of people, the Gentiles, they loved Jesus, but now they had people trying to add all this other stuff on top of it, and it just led to a lot of confusion. And so, as we look at this moment in the life of the church, what I want us to, to think about is this question. What are the essentials we need to follow Jesus? What are the essentials? Sometimes when you're, when you're confused or you're tired or you're stressed out, sometimes you need to just come back to the essentials. What does it really mean to follow Christ? How can I simplify and not make it more complex than it is? What's essential and what's not? Because whether we realize it or not, we all bring our own expectations and our own background into our faith. And sometimes what we think, uh, what, what, what we think is the truth or what we think needs to happen, we impose that on others. It's hard to live with someone else's expectations. Uh, so... I, Bonnie and I got engaged at a really young age. We were 20, I was 20, and, and she was 19, and we were in the middle of college, and, and we had only dated for eight months. But we were so in love, we are like, yes, we're gonna, uh, let's get engaged. And, and even two of those months, like, I was out of the country. So we really had only been hanging out 
for six months. We're very young, but we decide, no, this is it. We're going to get married. And that was met with a lot of support, but it was also met with a lot of skepticism uh, from different people in our lives. I remember I had one boss laugh at me when I told them the news. Ha, 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 like that's going to last, you know? Um, and even on my, on my uh, the night before my wedding, I had one of my friends come into town. Um, his name, name was Cameron. He came into town. He didn't have a place to stay, so he asked if he could stay with me on the night before my wedding with all my other friends. Hey, buddy. Is it good to see you? So he comes in. And then while we're all hanging out, he's like, hey, you know, um, if you need a place to lie low for a while, I, I got a place. And so I had all this, like, pressure. Hey, you're making a mistake. Don't do it. And what I found out is some people have you have to meet certain expectations before you get married. I should have finished college. I should have gotten, you know, financially set. I should, I should have done all these things before getting married. Like, I was jumping the gun. But, hey, 17 years later, we're very happy. We're still married. We're still a team. So, yeah, so take that, guys. But sometimes we have trouble in our minds separating what's essential to our faith and what's not. Sometimes we put our own expectations on people that we shouldn't. And I was trying to think of modern-day examples of how we might do this. What kind of expectations might we have of our fellow believers that we might not even think about? But I just thought of some different ways um, that we might do that. Like, do you think that all Christians should vote the same way? That we should all vote the same way? Are you shocked when Christians don't vote the way that you're voting? Anybody? No, everybody's quiet on that one. Uh, do you think that all Christians should be as charismatic as you? Or as conservative as you in the way that you worship? Do you think that all Christians should be as socially active as you? See, wherever you're at, we need to determine what is actually essential to following Christ. What does it actually mean to be a Christ follower? Because that's what unites us and moves us forward in this thing that Jesus wants so desperately for his church called unity. Unity is important. And we're going to look at this scene in Acts 15, and we're going to Bring, come into the story at the very end of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. They arrive back in Antioch, and they've just spent um, a long time preaching to the Gentiles, seeing people come to know uh, Jesus, like just amazing Holy Spirit thing after Holy Spirit thing, and they, they come back, and this is what happens next. This is Acts 14, 27. It says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul, um, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and, el and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here is the conflict. But put yourself in Paul and Barnabas's shoes for a minute. They had just come back from this very victorious season of seeing God work, especially among the Gentiles, seeing God's Holy Spirit move in people who were formerly pagan, formerly far from him. They saw them respond to the gospel. They saw them give their lives to Jesus, that God was bringing the most unlikely of people into his family. So that's what they come back to. And so what they've experienced is that Jesus is actually, he transcends the law. He transcends Judaism. He transcends culture. He actually can connect to anyone from any background. That he connects with all people. But then you have a group of people who were brought up to keep the whole law. To keep every part of the law. The religious keepers of order come and they say, hey, wait a minute. I mean, we're glad that all this stuff is going on, but, but they need to get, they need to become Jews, basically, is what he was saying. It says, But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So who are these people? As I said, they were ones who, were, who grew up in the synagogue. They grew up learning the whole law of Jesus. They grew up in a very religious environment and so they had prided themselves and kind of built their faith on doing everything right doing everything according to the law in fact they didn't just have the old testament they just didn't have moses's law they also had written this other huge book that we call the talmud that's basically all of the little details of how you should uh, fulfill the law exactly so they were used to a very rigid environment, and so they, they want to bring that into what God is doing among the Gentiles. And they insist on food laws, purification laws, all these things spelled out in the law of Moses, and circumcision, which I'm not going to go into detail on today, okay? I promise. Um, yeah, exactly. No, we'll just not go there. But, um, but that was a sign of the covenant that God had given to Abraham. And to Moses. And so if you were going to be one of God's people and you were a male, that's something that you had to do. And so what these men were saying by insisting on that for these new Christians is that, hey, to become a Christian, you have to become like us first. You have to be, become Jewish first. You have to go through the old covenant to get the new one. And so it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension or debate. That's a really polite way of saying they had a shouting match. They had a shouting match. So this is the this is a church you might relate more to, right? Like this is this is uh, something we might we might relate a little bit more to. But they're shouting at each other. They're passionate. They're they're trying to um, they're trying to dig their heels in and keep to their position because this is a really big deal. They didn't know what to do with these with these Gentiles, these former pagans. Who are coming to know Christ. What do we do with people who don't have all the information and tools 
that we have. Uh, what do we do with these people who have been sacrificing to idols, who've, who've been, lived in sexual immorality, they've done all these serious things that, that, a, that a Jew would never think of doing, would never come to mind. And so their thought is, we need to clean these people up. They need to look like us, they need to talk like us, and they need to appreciate the things that we appreciate, because that's what it means to follow Christ. And I was just thinking about that. I'm wondering, do we ever do that with people? Maybe not in an obvious way, but in subtle ways in our minds. Do we ever put people into categories or think about what people's life has looked like on the outside, their backstory? Are we including people in our circles that, that look different than us, that have a different story, a different background than us? Or are we just including people that believe about the same things and, and look the same way? Because God is interested in building his church. He's not interested in building a bunch of clubs. He's interested in building his church up. And so are we building his church or are we building a club? Because if we only live life with people who we get and understand and look like, we're never going to experience the church that God wants to build. And I think that our success as a church depends on this that we would include people who haven't lived the similar life that we have or don't have similar life experience or don't have similar tools or don't have all these different things that, that we would even include people who vote differently than us, people. Why? Because it's all about following Christ and knowing him, right? And so our call as a church is to focus on the essentials, not the exterior things, not the things on the periphery, but we actually need to, to know what the essentials are. And we should care about whether or not, and it's essentially caring about whether people know Jesus or not. It's all about Jesus. And so if we're going to be a church that looks like Jesus to our community, that means loving people and knowing people that are, are different than us in a lot of ways. And so back in Antioch, the church realized that this was an issue that, that couldn't be avoided. They couldn't just give it time. Oh, it'll calm down. They'll figure it out. No, we have to deal with this. So um, they send Paul and Barna Barnabas to Jerusalem to figure it out for the whole church. It's about 250-mile trip south from Antioch to Jerusalem, which they did on foot. So it was such a big deal. Um, Paul and Barnabas did the equivalent of you walking from here to Portland to have a meeting, okay? So that's a big deal. And so, because unity was so important. They didn't want to create two different factions. They didn't want to create two different churches. They wanted to preserve God's one church. And of course, today, 2,000 years later, we've seen a lot of division in churches, right? I mean, we, we, we've seen in church history the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, Within the Protestant church, how many different movements are there within the Protestant church? And of course, we're a non-denominational church, and we have our own little circle. So we're, we're all have dealt with a world where the church is divided. But what Paul and Barnabas do for us today is they model the importance of unity. They call us back to unity and clarity. What is the essential? What are the essentials? What do we need to talk about and fight for? And that's important to God. We need to not put unnecessary barriers in front of people to following Christ. 
and we need to understand what it means to follow Christ. And that's what we do here. That's reading our Bible. That's seeking Jesus. We understand what it looks like to follow Christ. Because unity is so important to, to Jesus, it's what he prayed for before he went to the cross. It's what he cried out to the Father in John 17. He prayed to the Father that we would become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Unity is one way that we show God is real to the world. Like, Jesus wants to be known in bringing together a bunch of different random people and, and creating unity and purpose and love with those people. And that speaks to the world. And so, here we have the main Gentile church, Antioch. They send Paul and Barnabas to the main Jewish church, Jerusalem. And this is where it picks up in verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter has seen this. Um, Peter sighting, by the way. He's back. So, um, but, so the apostles and elders gather together. And this is a time, so this is maybe the only time recorded in Acts where all the, uh, you know, apostles and, and leaders of the church are together in one room, and it's about this topic. And they have much debate. They don't come to a conclusion quickly. They have a debate. They talk back and forth. And you can even see where the apostles, the apostles were even split on this issue. And then we have Peter. This is actually the last time we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. And um, what Peter says is that he's seen this too. He's seen that God has opened a door to the Gentiles. Um, he, he says that he's cleansed their hearts by faith. It's faith. It's faith and faith alone that cleanses someone's hearts, that, that, that makes us clean before God. It's, it's faith that matters. And God had opened Peter's eyes to see that he had made a way for the Gentiles, and it's simply through faith in, in the grace of Jesus. And he, he says there is no distinction between us and them. There is no high ground. There is no, well, we're better because we're more informed, and you're not. There is no high ground. There's no distinction between us and them. There is no high ground because it's only faith alone. Faith alone saves. Faith alone makes us right. In the eyes of God. And you can imagine how people who had grown up in this, uh, in this Jewish environment uh, were a little upset because they had spent their whole lives um, focusing on the details of the law. Like all of the little have-tos and musts, like they knew all that stuff. And so it might, must have offended them a little bit to think that now there's this much easier way uh, to know God. And it's not that those things don't matter, but it doesn't, 
It doesn't matter for salvation. All that matters for salvation is that we have faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so Peter gets at this, is that God's grace and coming to know Christ actually removes burdens from our lives, right? It should remove burdens from our lives. We're not supposed to carry the burden of the law, right? Because God is writing that law on our hearts. We should be pursuing him first. And so we don't have to complicate following Jesus or create unnecessary steps because Jesus is, is it. Faith in Jesus alone is what saves. Faith in Jesus alone. He is the door. He is the way. And, and we're actually, Peter gets at this, we're not actually not able to fulfill the law in our own strength. Like we need the strength of the Holy Spirit to even obey God. And so he gets at that because there is nothing standing between anyone and Jesus except faith faith alone is what saves and so we need to rest in that this morning we are a people of grace we've been saved by grace through faith and so if you have faith in Jesus but you're still living in the past or you still feel defined by the past, or you still feel trapped by the past, like God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace is bigger than your past, and it gives you a clean identity. It talks about how we've been fully cleansed, that God's grace has fully cleansed us from whatever we had going on before we knew him, and that he's given us a new identity. And I know that sometimes the church doesn't always get that right. We're not always the most gracious, great, uh, graceful people. And we can get it wrong if we think that somehow, like, our, our tenure or our success as Christians somehow gives us more favor in God's eyes. That's not the case. The New Testament tells us that again and again and again. Because if, if you believe in Christ and if you're following him, then you have been made clean whoever you are, whatever background you come from. It's a gift. It's faith alone that saves us. And I want to uh, share what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1. He said this. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Catch that last line. No human being can boast in the presence of God, right? So there's nothing that we do that gives us any more, uh, any more reason to boast before God. All of our salvation comes from him and him alone. It's what Jesus did, right? It's not something that we have to do. It's what Jesus did, and, and, and our faith comes from believing and trusting in him, in the person and the work of Jesus. And I was thinking about this day, and I remembered this quote from a really famous philosopher, uh, Mr. Rogers. You might have heard of him. He's a really good philosopher, and he, he had this line that said, I love you just the way you are. Remember that? It's very nice. It's very sweet. Uh, he's a sweet guy. Um, but the gospel version of that is that God loves you, and he called you just the way you were, right? 
He called you just the way you were. He didn't ask for you, um, didn't ask for you to clean anything up before coming to him. He called you just the way you were. He knew exactly where you're at. He knew exactly what you're struggling with. He knew exactly what your life looked like, and he called you because he loves you. And that doesn't mean that we don't change. Like, life and our journey with Christ will lead us into times of repentance, times of change, where we will constantly change to become more like Christ. But God chose you. God chose you for exactly who you were. God chooses people who feel low, who feel small, who feel rejected by the world. God chooses them and calls them to turn the world upside down, right? So that he can get the glory so that he can get the glory. He chooses the weak to shame the wise, so that no one can boast. So, let's get back to the council. How did things end? Where did they end at the council? After Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas back him up. They share all about what they've, the work that they've seen God do among the Gentiles. So there's this, this support and this story that's being told at the council that, that is, goes from Peter to Paul and Barnabas. And then finally, this guy, James, speaks up. So James is believed to be the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, and the writer of the book of James in the New Testament. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, kind of the elder statesman of the church in Jerusalem. So out of a lot of leadership, he was probably sympathetic to a lot of these ex-Pharisees. He's probably sympathetic to, to that, but he concludes this. It says, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But James brings everything back full circle, and what he says to his Jewish brothers is this was always part of the plan. God was going to use Israel to create a remnant on earth that would seek him. Um, because now God is doing something even greater than what Israel is and was. It's called the church. Um, and Israel was a part of God's plan to reach the ends of the earth, but it was not the whole thing. And that now God has made himself available to people of every nation, every tribe, every culture. God is available. Because James is also recognizing that it's faith alone that saves. It's faith alone that saves, and anyone can come to a saving faith in Christ. But he concludes with some instructions. These aren't essentials for salvation, but they are essentials for growth in James' eyes. This is like James being pastoral to the Gentiles. And he's saying, focus on these three things— it's, it's not about salvation, but if you want to grow in Christ, focus on these three things. And the first thing he tells them to do is to abstain from things polluted by idols. The first thing he addresses is idolatry. This is the number one problem 
for the Gentiles. It's that they came from a pagan background where there's a pantheon of gods, and a temp the temptation might be, let's just make Jesus one of those guys. No, J Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and there's only one God. So first he says, get rid of, of, of any pollution from idols so that you can have all your focus on Christ. Even in the New Testament, Paul repeats that God is a jealous God. You know, God wants your heart. He doesn't want your heart wandering to all these different things. He wants your heart set on him. So the first thing he addresses is idolatry, and then he talks about sexual immorality. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. And just like today, that was a very sexualized culture. Um, there were a, there was a lot of prostitution. There was even, like, temple prostitution and different things. And so there was the do-what-feels-good attitude at that time. But what he's saying is when we become a Christ follower, there's a lot of things that we repent of over time. But this is a big one. This is a big one to focus on because it can quickly derail your life and your pursuit of God. So deal with this first. Deal with this first. Submit to God in this area. Start here. And if you're struggling in that area today, James' words are for you too. That's something that you need to deal with so that you can abstain from it and run from it so that you can grow in Christ. And then he has these weird things at the end where are like, what are you talking about? So he says that they should abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, it's weird, right? I mean, it's kind of not something we think about a lot, hopefully. Um, but he's talking about food, and this is all about honor. This is all about honoring their, honoring their Jewish brothers and sisters. This is, he's actually asking for a concession here. So in, in, um, in, in the Jewish law, it was it, to eat something that was not drained of its blood was a really, really bad thing. In fact, Jews typically would not associate with people who ate, uh, like, ate meat that wasn't drained of its blood because life was in the blood. And, and so he's asking for a small concession uh, of the Gentiles, that they would take one step towards their Jewish brothers and sisters to show unity, that they wouldn't have a defiant or flippant attitude towards their convictions, but that they would actually take one step towards it. Obviously, something that's been strangled has not been drained of its blood, if you're wondering what that whole thing is about. Um, but he's asking them to just take a step forward. He didn't want them to live with an attitude of, like, uh, what lines can I cross? You know, and just test their freedom over and over again. God gives freedom, but we're not supposed to, to, to fly that freedom in each other's faces, right? We're supposed to be sensitive to, our, to each other's conscience so that we can walk together. Um, God wants, this is kind of a symbol of, hey, lay down your individualism so that you can actually live in unity. Sometimes we value our individualism too much, and we can actually hurt our brothers and sisters um, if we're too flippant with our freedom, if we're not aware of things that they struggle with, whether it's alcohol or whatever, um, we can really hurt our brothers and sisters. And so what I want to ask as we close this morning is, is this. Are, are you focusing on the essentials or the non-essentials? Are you focused on Jesus? Are you focused on loving each other well? Are you focusing on the specific calling that God has given you? 
whether, whether that's leadership or counseling or serving or, or hospitality? Are you focused on those things or are you focused on non-essentials? Ha- have other things crept in, idolatry or, or feeling small and ex- insignificant or still being defined by your past and, and, and not living in the grace that God has given you? Because I don't know what it is for you, but I do know that it's really easy to get off track and lose our focus on the essential of just knowing Jesus, just literally knowing him, just living every day to know him more, right? To, to take one more step every day to spend time with him, to make him the center of our life, not just the salvation part, but the whole thing. Yes, Jesus saves us, but he wants us to live a life like with him so that we can become like Christ, so that we can't, we're not just waiting for heaven to be transformed, that we can be transformed right now. And, um, and that is essential, that we place all of our hope and all of our trust and all of our faith in Christ. And when we fail, we get back up and we keep going. And, and if we're holding on to our past, we let go and we trust in the grace that Jesus provided. Because it's enough. It's enough that we don't hold others' pasts against them. But we learn to walk in grace and that we don't live to elevate ourselves, but we live to elevate Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come before you today, and Jesus, just, there's just this simple truth, God, that you want, you love us, and you command us to love you, God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, I don't think there's anything more essential than that. Knowing you and loving you and following you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to take stock of our lives, God. Lord, look for ways that maybe we aren't chasing you with our whole heart or uh, we've pushed other people away, maybe not even consciously. Um, God, I pray that you would help us, God, to walk more in step with you and your spirit. I pray that you would meet us in the, in the space where we take one step towards you, that you, would, that you would run towards us. We know that from the picture in Luke 15 of the father running to meet his son. God, if, if we are feeling identified by our past or, or identified by shame, I pray that you would help us to know the grace of Jesus, the grace, the costly grace of Jesus provided through the cross. Lord, that we could, we could live cleansed, that our conscience would be cleansed, that our life would be cleansed, that we could walk every day in his grace. <laughs> None of us make it through life without your grace. Lord, we all need it. We all walk in it. Lord, give us a stronger faith. Lord, give us a stronger faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.